your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 35. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of the disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, And on many of who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among these born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang the dirge for you. They sang the dirge. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, have you experienced, expected one thing to happen and you find yourself scratching your head and you become dumbfounded because a thing, something completely different took place? See, we are human and mistakes can happen. We can analyze the, da- the data and be confident in our expectations. But sometimes what we expect does not come to pass. See, John the Baptist can relate 
to the frustration. He analyzed the data and had an expectation of what the Messiah was supposed to be. But when the Messiah did not meet his expectations, doubt and confusion arose. So our focus this morning as we explore Scripture is the changing of the times can be difficult to understand. We'll look at this at three points. First, John's misunderstanding. Second point, Jesus clarifies. And our third point, Jesus warns. See, in verse 18, the landscape shifts from a focus from Jesus to John the Baptist. And at this point, you might be wondering where John the Baptist is and where he's receiving these reports from his disciples. See, the last time Luke talks about John the Baptist, he was placed in jail by Herod. Luke 3, 19-20 explained that John was put in jail because John spoke against all the evils that Herod was doing. And although John finds himself in prison, he's still able to receive visitors, even his own disciples. So with two of the disciples present, John takes the opportunity to send them to Jesus with a question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And it's a peculiar question from the mouth of John. We can wonder why John is asking this question. Are the jail cell walls closing in on him? Is death knocking at his door? Or was it because John had a different expectation of Jesus' work? For instance, John is in jail. And Jesus healed the servant of a Gentile soldier. See, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, why is he helping Gentile soldiers' servants while John is still in jail? This was not the powerful, sovereign judge that John was expecting or declared when he said, the one with his winnowing fork in his hand, clearing the threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn, and burning the chaff in unquenchable fire. What were John's expectations? See, John is not doubting whether Jesus was sent from God. Remember, John leapt in the womb of Elizabeth when he heard the voice of Mary, the mother of the Messiah. He baptized Jesus and saw the Spirit descend upon him like a dove. And he even heard the voice of the Father. And he even heard all those miraculous things that Jesus had been doing. See, it seems that in John's mind, Jesus does not seem to fit the description of what he was expecting. So John wants a very specific question answered. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John is sending his disciples to ask Jesus point blank, are you the Messiah? The Messiah was to come into the world with power. The Jewish understanding of the eschaton at the final age, the Messiah was supposed to establish the Jewish nation. See, John would understand that Jesus would inaugurate and consummate the kingdom of God now. John's probably thinking, what's the holdup? Jesus explained that he would proclaim liberty to the captives. But John has not experienced this. He's rotting in a jail cell. 
So John's doubts and confusions arise because what he expected Jesus to be is not living up to his expectations. See, Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God now, but the consummation of the kingdom comes later. And even now we can feel the same way John does. As Christians, what are your expectations of Jesus Christ? Right now, Jesus Christ is reigning at the right hand of the Father. But do you ever find yourself wondering, why does it seem like the world is winning? Why do things get worse? Do you look around and feel dissatisfied? See, don't mistake Jesus Christ's patience with impotence. He is the righteous, sovereign judge, and every deed will be judged. But it might not be the expectations of the world, but what about on a personal level? Did you expect holiness to be inaugurated and consummated upon confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Did you expect the Spirit to start and finish His work at that moment? Because you keep wondering, why am I rotting in this sin that traps me? Why does the pollution of sin still choke me? Or maybe why do I have this thorn that keeps stabbing me? But he is working. And just because you don't understand does not mean that he's absent. For his thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways his ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than your ways. His thoughts higher than your thoughts. But when confusion and doubt arise, you send prayers and John sends messengers. And when the disciples finally arrive at Jesus' location, we understand the importance of John's question because the disciples replicated the question word for word. Are you the one to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus does not answer the question right away, but we see Jesus Christ laboring healing many people of diseases, of plagues, of evil spirits, and many who are blind. So the disciples get a first-hand glimpse of the work of Jesus Christ. And we can take a moment now to ponder, what did that look like? How long were these lines, or how big were these crowds? Imagine the conversations in the line, the excitement and the anticipation of being healed. Think of what did Jesus Christ's bedside manner look like? What did that conversation look like? Did they even have to explain to Jesus Christ the symptoms? Was the patient just speechless because they knew the weightiness of the presence of whom they were speaking to? What was the response of the people being healed? Were they gasping for words dumbfounded in amazement? trying to find the words to express gratitude for a miracle that Jesus Christ just performed? You can only imagine the response of joy and happiness of those who have been healed. The blind receiving sight. Never has a man been born blind that has received sight. And the, closest, the closest illustration is probably being colorblind. You can see videos of people who are colorblind being given special glasses, and for the first time, these glasses will allow them to see colors they could never see before. 
Imagine being unable to distinguish colors, and now you put on something that allows you to see the colors more fully. But this is just an aid. You're not healed, and without your glasses, you can't see. And everyone here at one point in time was blind, unable to see the vibrance of Jesus Christ, unable to see the life given to us by Jesus Christ. But what about when your eyes were opened? The joy and happiness that you experienced by the bl- should mirror the experience of the blind, no matter how long the person was blind. Imagine opening your eyes for the first time and you get to see Jesus Christ. Or maybe you grew up in the church, so you always saw Jesus Christ. You can't remember a day without him. So perhaps you have more in common then with the colorblind who put on the glasses and can see vibrant colors for the first time. How long have you walked with Jesus Christ? Do you not see him as a richer array of colors? Do you not see the darkness, the heinous, and the vileness of sin? Should not the vibrance of your Savior also shine greater Because the darkness you see in sin, because you see its true colors. And therefore, the more vibrant Jesus Christ should shine in your eyes. Because you understand your weakness. You understand your frailties. And the power and the majesty of your faithful Savior. Or have the works of Jesus Christ not penetrated your heart? So you only see Jesus Christ in grayscale because you want your self-righteousness to shine. Because the only way for you to shine is to weaken the work of the cross. See, after the disciples witnessed all these miracles that performed by Jesus, he responds finally to the disciples. And Jesus' response shows compassion to John in his moment of weakness. See, Jesus Christ does not rebuke John because he should have known better, but reminds him simply and plainly. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The leopards are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news preached to them. See, Jesus explains to John what he already knows because Jesus is referencing the scroll that was unrolled an event that took place in Nazareth at the synagogue, recorded for us in Luke 4, 18 through 19, but also in other texts in Isaiah. See, Jesus is suggesting the wider scope of salvation. Jesus reassures John that he is doing the work that he said he would, and it is exactly what the Spirit of the Lord has anointed him to do. And Jesus ends his response to John with the Beatitude. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. There's a call to faith and a focus on Jesus Christ. It is for John, but it also extends to us and all who encounter Jesus Christ. There's a personal focus on Jesus Christ. He is the issue. The one who will deal with what God is doing must deal with Jesus Christ. 
Those who doubt are called to trust in what Jesus Christ said. His words are true. If he says it, he will complete it. The truthful words of Jesus Christ that take you all the way to the cross. And as Jesus Christ is hanging there and says, it is finished. You can have full confidence that Jesus Christ has finished the work that he set out to accomplish. That you need not look for another. Because in Jesus Christ, you have the full remission of all your sins. So trust his words. Trust that when Jesus Christ said it is finished, he completed his work. That was Jesus' call to John, and it extends to us as well. Trust in him. Trust in the work that he's doing. And when John's messengers had gone, he turned to the crowds, and Jesus clarifies. And the text does not inform us if John's disciples were privy to this information. But when Jesus Christ turns to the crowds, he holds John in high regard. As some might have seen, Jesus' response as a slight rebuke. Jesus starts at by asking a rhetorical question in verse 24. What did you go out to see? A reed shaking in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Some commentators point out that Jesus is reminding the people that John was a man of conviction. Not being blown about like a spineless, uncertain man. John was a man of conviction, which is evident in his arrest for his stance against Herod. But some commentators also believe that Jesus is highlighting John's location, the desert, and his clothing, not being eloquent. But most likely, Jesus is illustrating for the people that you did not come to the desert to see reeds blowing. You did not travel to the desert to see something that is common in the desert. You did not come to the desert to see a man in soft clothing because they're found not in the desert but in palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. See, it wasn't the location that drew them nor was his fancy clothes. It was a man with a message. And not only a prophet, but more than a prophet. John is the greatest prophet of the old period. Because John got to see what was longed for by all the prophets. The Messiah and the coming of the kingdom. John was the bridge from promise to fulfillment. And John was so great that even this event surrounding John's birth is recorded in the Scripture. Not only that, but his important role is recorded as prophecy in Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The importance of John's message is that the people respond to it. See, John is preparing the people for God's coming Messiah. Accepting his message offers protection, but failure to respond results in judgment. So yet even with John's being the greatest, sorry, even when with John's greatness, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Jesus holds up John saying, born of a woman, no one, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Why? John belonged to the time of promise and not the time of fulfillment. Because John served in the area 
of preparation. See, the spiritual privileges of grace and knowledge that are received by the least of those in the kingdom of God are superior to John's position. And it's remarkable to think about. As one commentator points out, Jesus' remark in verse 28 is one of the greatest affirmations of the believer's status in Scripture. To belong to the kingdom is a great privilege. It's a great privilege to belong to God's kingdom. Your relationship is closer and it's more intimate than the area the era of promise because you can cry out abba father you can cry abba father because when jesus christ hung up on that cross he removed the guilt of adam's sin and now you are reconciled back to the father adopted as children of god and not only children but heirs in the kingdom of god see great privilege seems so irreverent to explain such a status but how can you explain such a privilege with words? See, when Jesus made this great affirmation, there was a distinct response in the crowds. The ones who were baptized with John's baptism declared God to be just. They recognized and responded to John's baptism. But the leaders, the ones with all the knowledge and all the wisdom, they do not recognize their need to repent and rejected God's counsel. And observe who responded to the gospel. It was not the piety of the leaders of Israel that bent the knee, but the sinners and the tax collectors. Those who you least expect might be the ones who respond to the gospel. And your heart needs to be prepared for this. Prepared for what you might not expect to receive someone who you might not expect, but also preparing to extend the gospel to someone you might not expect. Because how you expect God to work might be far from how he chooses to work. And does this shape how you present the gospel to unbelievers? Don't you diminish the power of the gospel to transform lives when you look at someone and think, Ah, oh, they're beyond hope. Is there a particular stereotype to whom you are presenting the gospel? See, Jesus expanded the narrow focus of John's understanding of salvation. Should you not expand your focus on who the gospel is for? Having experienced the privileges of the kingdom of God, shouldn't your heart long for the sheep not yet gathered into the flock? Those sheep still experiencing life without their loving shepherd? See, John had expectations of what the kingdom of God was like, an idea in his mind of something great. But Jesus clarifies that there is something greater than even John could envision, that salvation is not only for the Jews, and those who are least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than the greatest of prophets, that the time of fulfillment is better than the time of promise. See, moments after Jesus clarifies the richness of what John had missed, he now turns his focus and Jesus warns. Jesus turns his attention from John to the current generation of religious leaders. And using a parable, as is his practice when he discussed the kingdom of God, says in verse 30, 31 and 32, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? 
They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. A commentator liked to explain this parable as the parable of the brats. Like children squabbling over rules of the game, loading the rules in their favor to make sure they are the ones who won. See, in the parable, Jesus is comparing the complaining children to this generation. And we can assume that the Jewish objectors are the children. It's helpful to understand then that this parable is told from the perspective of the children. The generation is like children who play only if they can make up the rules. Not only do they refuse to cooperate, but they flat out refuse to play. See, the leaders desired to dictate the terms. And if the messengers did not conform, they would have nothing to do with God's messengers. And therefore, the leaders rejected John and Jesus because they did not play by the children's rules. Jesus highlights the irony as he creates a contrast between the ministers, the ministries of both John the Baptist and himself. See, John the Baptist was straight-laced and conformed to asceticism, abstaining from bread and wine. He was secluded, living in a desert. John's message was rooted in God's plan, and it was the very message that they hated. See, John's lifestyle was just an excuse. It was an easy way out, so they claimed that he had a demon to discredit him. See, Jesus came as something different. He came to the people. He was not a recluse, but met with people in public appearances, in weddings, and in banquets. He did not display the asceticism of John. Jesus came eating and drinking. Yet they called him a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, John and Jesus demonstrate faithful behavior to the work that God set them, up, set them apart to do. And they were rejected for it. But also because they failed to conform to the games determined by this generation. And they get branded as freaks, not to be taken seriously. See, and what is true for John and Jesus, it will also true for you. And don't take it personally. Because you're not the one they take offense to or have a problem with. They will use you as the scapegoat, discrediting something about you to justify the neglect of the message of salvation. It is the message of the cross that is offensive to pious ears. They do not want to hear that they are sinners and they need a Savior, a Savior who went to the cross and died in their place. The message of the cross is a stumbling block to those who depend on their self-righteousness. So be patient with them and do not be afraid to speak the truth because it's not you. It's the message that they take offense to. They'll criticize your lifestyle as a parent, your choice of schooling, as a wife because you stay at home, as a family with a vehicle full of kids. You're intelligent for following religion and not science. No matter who presents the message and their method, they will find fault with the messenger. Because it's easier to criticize and discredit you as a means to reject the gospel than it is to discredit the gospel message. Because that requires self-examination and to the conclusion that they are a sinner and that they need a Savior. See, the form of the ministry didn't matter. Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus had a demon. John had a demon. And they will say the same 
about you. It's not the style that offends. It's the message. See, the style was an easy target to discredit, to feel justified in their neglect of the gospel message. But wisdom is justified by all her children. The children of wisdom are those who align themselves with God's purposes. So who is serving whom? Are you expecting God to serve you, or do you serve him? You do not approach God on your terms. You respond to his call. You need to recognize your need for grace and forgiveness. Serve Christ. He is gentle and lowly and compassionate, serving and healing the downcast. Trust his words because they give life. He is the great shepherd who protects his flock. See, the leaders of Israel failed to do this. And it is to their shame and to their folly because there is no one coming after Jesus Christ. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the kingdom has been inaugurated and we are in the last days. And as we wait for the consummation of the kingdom of God, remember God spoke through his son, the last prophet. And after Jesus, there is no other. There is no other gospel that offers salvation. Only Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. So come to him. Trust in him and receive all the privileges of the kingdom of God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you weak and feeble, Lord, that we do not know what your purposes are, that you have a plan that is so far above our comprehension that we cannot even fully comprehend, Lord, what you have. No eye is seen, no ear is heard, Lord. But we know of the sure plan of Jesus Christ, that through Christ we have the redemption of our sins, that we've been reconciled back to the Father, and now are adopted as children of God, where we can cry out, Abba, Father. Lord, so although there's uncertainties in this world, and we do not know the direction that you are going, Lord, we can have full confidence and faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So in times of doubt and trouble, may we look to him for our security. It's through his name that we pray all these things. Amen. Our hymn of thanks is